This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hey, welcome back. Today, we've got uh, a couple of good friends of mine, Marty and Mike. Um, good conversation about fintech. These uh, We talk about fintech a lot. And um, we had some conversations. It seems like it was about a year ago. But what was going to be happening now is this like pre-COVID conversations so or probably more than a year ago. And some of that stuff has come true. And so we're seeing things change pretty rapidly. So I just wanted to chat with you guys real quick about what you're seeing and, um, and what we can expect to see in the future. So Marty, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Glad to be here again. Yeah. So um, I guess to start off, like we made some predictions a while back about what was going to happen in, in banking and finance and all the fintech stuff. And a lot of that stuff is, is happening. Like NFTs are happening. We're starting to see like uh, the challenger banks are continuing to grow. We're starting to see people start to latch onto some of that stuff. What, what are you guys seeing out there? What's exciting you these days? I mean, the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing is this, um, this comfortability with uh, trying a new bank uh, and not feeling like you're beholden or sort of stuck to some of the traditional mental models we had around banking, like, you know, where's my closest branch? I think that's, that's right. like the number one thing people look for when they look for a bank, which, and if you look at like the actual data from the banks, there's not a whole lot of people walking into branches, but we still have this, 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 I don't know, we're holding on to this old mental model and this little bit of fear that if I can't walk into my branch, that like, you know, somehow I'll be, I'll be in trouble. But uh, I think we saw this building up pre-COVID with like peer-to-peer -peer lending where we we're starting to do more on Square Cash and Venmo and more transactions were happening that way. You know, every, all the, all the earlier sort of incumbents got the same kind of feature sets right about the same time. You know, uh, there mm -hmm. was a time where scanning your check to do a check deposit on a mobile app was like a big deal. And now it's like, I couldn't imagine an app not having that. It would seem silly if you launched. Yeah, now it's just table stakes. Like, yeah, yeah. And then, and then when the challenger breaks first came out you had this notion that like, oh, you know, they can get you your your, your paycheck a couple of days earlier. And that seemed really cool. And now it's like, if you launch and you don't have that I couldn't imagine it. And that seems you know, ridiculous. Um, so I, I think that's the big thing is where we're noticing um, a lot of these features that felt innovative or revolutionary sort of commonplace and, uh, you know, uh, status quo. And then we're finding that a lot more folks, because I, I think the pandemic obviously uh, accelerated a lot of digital adoption, but the biggest one I think is in banking where, um, you know, we didn't want to touch cash, you know, for the, for a few months right. there in, in, in 2020. And um, we had to do things more, more digitally. And, um, you know, we weren't allowed to go into banks for, for a hot second there. And so uh, right. I, that, that changed, that changed the landscape pretty, pretty significantly. Yeah, like touchless transactions at the grocery and people like all of the the stuff where you didn't have to touch things that other humans have touched. Yeah, and things that felt tech, like the QR code, you know, felt like this right. very, I mean, to, you know, to, to the layman, like this very tech sort of thing. Now it's everyone knows what a QR code is. Everyone has scanned one to pull up a menu on their iPhone when you're know, yep. dining outside at a restaurant. So I think I think like, like if, if anything, if, if any major thing that happened for you know banking uh, during the pandemic, I think it was the adoption of the QR code because it just it brought this immediate like oh. That, that thing that felt futuristic and weird to me, like it's not that scary. It's pretty easy. And so these other, I, I think it just, it, it reduced the immediate barrier to entry with, with, that it felt like there was for, for doing kind of the new cool hip things online. Right. And it, add, it added some utility, right? Because now I can see why a QR code is helpful. Yeah. Pre-COVID, pre we kind of all made fun of them. But the second I sat down at a restaurant table and they're like, scan this QR code. I was like, Oh, okay. And it was got the menu right away. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, um, free trading Schwab introduced commission free trading, what seems like an eternity ago. And now that's table stakes. And just recently we saw all of the, uh, kind of turmoil and, and chaos and frenzy around GameStop and what that did to Robin hood and, you know, Robin hood, paved the path for like really, really simple, um, you know, 
trades, right? You could just get on swipe a couple of times and you bought, you bought some Apple or you bought some Google or whatever. Um, but we also see that now that it's been exposed that Robinhood doesn't do some things that some of the big brokerages do. Um, how's that affecting people? Like there was this mass exodus from Robinhood and they went from five stars to zero stars or one star on the Google play store. Right. So where do we see like some of the, um, the ease of use and the um, like how cool it is to use something being overridden by some of the actual kind of the back office stuff that people might not know right away. Yeah. I, I, I struggle with the Robinhood one just because um, we saw a lot of people get upset with Robinhood. And I think a lot of that was in our own sort of bubbles, but then, you know, Robinhood, it, it, it had the greatest number of user signups that it ever had during that whole turmoil. So it's like, you know, Robinhood grew at this amazing rate during. Yeah. But was that Robinhood or was that, or was that GameStop? Like what oh, was yeah, really yeah. driving? I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, it leads, I mean, yeah. Robinhood doesn't get the credit for it. GameStop does, but, but, but you know, it ultimately is more, more Robinhood account signups and, you know, more Robinhood deposits than Robinhood ever had before, you know, at least right. in, in that same time period. So like, you know, as, as upset as people are, it did draw them in. But I think from an insider's perspective, uh, or at least people in tech, um, you know, that are building on some of these infrastructures, it highlighted a few things. One, uh, I think it made it pretty clear in fintech that a lot of what we're seeing is, is what we call, you know, lipstick on a pig. Um, a lot of these uh, new challenger banks are really just um, built on top of somebody else's bank. So, you know, Square Cash isn't its own bank. It, it, you know, it's some, you know, uh, Midwest small regional bank, and same with uh, you know Chime and, and, and a whole bunch of PayPal. You know PayPal, you know is just some small regional bank somewhere in the in the U.S. And I, so that's come to light. And I think that um, I don't know if that gives people more comfort or, or less. Uh, and then you know the other thing that I think you know as you bring up Robinhood, the, the the big thing there too is that I that I think is changing things and will continue to change things is this idea of like fractional ownership. Um, you know having you know just a fraction of a share of, of a company, not having to buy a share. And I think that's right. what's really, you know, exploded the excitement around things like um, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, because you don't have to buy a single Bitcoin, you can just buy fractional shares of a Bitcoin. So it makes it more accessible. Yeah, Mike, totally. Mike, I heard you say something as well. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned lipstick on a pig, right? And which comes down to, or comes back to, you know, Robinhood's a really good user experience for new time users, uh, like traders, you know, people installing Robinhood for the first time getting exposure to the market. But um, we're kind of seeing that, you know, there's just not a lot of education on what is trading and like, what are options and what am I doing? Because they've chosen to hide all the complicated things in to serve new user, new newbie or retail investors. Right. So. Yeah. Um, it does seem like the greatest uh, thing that FinTech modern day FinTech has brought to the table is a better user experience. You know, your mm -hmm. Chime is a better experience mobile banking than any other bank before it. And now all banking, now the bar has been set and all banking will get better with time. And then eventually, you know, Chime will be status quo unless it continues to, mm -hmm. um, you know, adopt and, and, and revolutionize itself. And then, you know, I think we saw the same thing with, with Robinhood where, you know, significantly better experience, you know, E-Trade had kind of the best experience, you know, from the old traditional banks. And then, you know, Robinhood comes in and kind of revolutionizes the game. Then, you know, public kind of the one ups them a little and so you know people will just keep making the experience better but i think in that pursuit to like what mike was saying you know we, we lose a little something in, in trying to make it so easy to set up an account and so easy to get started we buried some of the key mm -hmm. fundamentals to like getting into something that you really didn't know a whole lot about and then you know getting yourself into a little bit of trouble and i, I don't want to say that this is like a dark pattern where anyone did it intentionally but i do think the same outcomes of you know traditional like design dark patterns came to play here where by by not having by 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 putting forward what you thought was was a better user experience you ultimately provided um in some ways a worse user experience for folks it's a classical yeah. like ux problem right is like as you simplify things you remove you have to remove to simplify most most often and there comes a point where like that's good for new users that's good for people like me who first time booting up robin hood over the summer but um as you you kind of have to think and as as i grow as a robin hood user i want to do more and i don't i don't know how to do more or i don't know what i'm doing well, in some cases, you just can't do more because Robinhood yeah, exactly. doesn't support it. Yeah, right. And I, yeah, mm -hmm. and then you know, I had a conversation with someone else recently, and they were saying that you know that everyone's going to go back to 
your Schwabs and Vanguards and E-Trades and all of those people because they want the power of um, more information and being able to do more complex things uh, to manage their money. And then, you know, I think the answer to that is something like Webull. Like Webull looks great like Robinhood, but it also has all the same kind of information and power to do various things as, you know, the legacy trading platforms. So to your point, Marty is like, you know, a great UI, you know, a beautiful interface is kind of table stakes. The bar's been set. And so are these old companies going to catch up or are they going to continue to lag behind? Well, this is a pretty good segue to sort of um, what, what, what Mike's working on that I've been helping him with on the gather side, because you know, what I'm seeing in just FinTech in general is it's, it's become so easy to create um, accounts, for anything. And so now because of that, you know, we're seeing, Hey, I can just stand up a Robinhood account real quick. And you know, that can be like a, a complimentary account to my Schwab account or my E-Trade account. Um, you know, I can stand up a public account in addition to my Robinhood. I can have my bank of America. I can have a chime. I can have, you know, four or five other banking accounts really quickly. And so it was, it was kind of nice how easy and quick it was to set up and stand up. Um, you know, we're seeing a couple of things. One, you know, the average account balance on, on, on like a Robinhood is, is less than $200. So while there's a lot of accounts, um, you know, there isn't a lot in the, in the account balance themselves. The same with Chime. Now Chime doesn't see that as a, as a bad thing because they specifically go after the underbanked. Um, and so, right. you know, they're, they're naturally going to have lower account balances, but, you know, in aggregate, they have just so many accounts that it makes up, but we're, but what I'm, what I'm, what I'm wondering is if we're going to see a reset. And I think this kind of speaks to how Mike sees the world they gather, um, where you just have too many accounts and you're going to want some level of consolidation. And, you know, is that getting rid of accounts or is that platforms, that don't require, you know, new checking account creation or, you know, new account creation. Yeah. yeah so I was gonna say, Mike, dig into that a little bit. So first tell people what you're doing at gather and why you decided to do it. Yeah. So gather is personal finances, but for like couples um, it's to help couples have, you know, manage their money together, have better conversations around their money. And where you know, we pull a lot of like behavioral, um, you know, sciences to help couples have better conversations about their money. But one of those aspects that Marty kind of hinted at a second ago was this concept of bring your own bank, BYOB, we call it. And, you know, it's, it's allowing two people to come together to manage their finances together, even though they don't have the same checking account. One might be at um, Chime and the other might be at uh, Bank of America. And, um, that, that, that's sort of where, um, you know, the whole concept of, you know, switching, the cost of switching and like, I might not, in the future, I might not want um, to just consolidate all of my finances under one umbrella or one big yeah, bank. I, I saw on Twitter the other day, like somebody was poking fun where there's, you know, they took a screenshot of four different apps and they, they, there's literally a, a, a there, there's a bank for pet lovers. So you can have your right. own checking account for pet lovers. <laughs> There's one for you know the um, LGBTQ community. There's one for uh, veterans, and you know like, like some of these like like they they make a whole lot of sense. But I think the point that they were trying to make was that like the niche bank is both here in you know a dominant force, but like also I think they're you know they're poking a little bit of fun, especially the dog lovers. You know like like when is it too much? Uh, and sure. you know, at what point are you going to notice that you have you know, fifteen checking accounts open and you know you've got you know less than two hundred dollar account balances in, in all of them. Uh, and so like there's this one, uh, I don't even know if you'd call them a competitor, but they're just um, in the same space as Gather called Zeta. And, you know, it is uh, joint checking, modern day joint checking for couples, but it means now you have to go and create another checking account. And that means you have to figure out how to do your direct deposits and like money movement. And it just complicates things where, you know, I've, I've been using my Bank of America for, you know, a decade. My wife's been using her Wells Fargo for a decade. Like, you know, we have everything set up and going there. Like we, we just want to be able to move money between the two of us, the two of us for, you know, paying the mortgage or, you know, planning that summer vacation. And, you know, we don't want to create a whole new checking account uh, that we have to now, uh, you know, manage a, a, now another account in addition to all the other accounts that we have. Yeah. And then, so with Gather, you, you in a way we kind of joke at, we're doing away with the joint account, you know, we're allowing you to have kind of a managed um, joint account without a joint account and wrapping, we're building a UI around your banking accounts uh, to, to make it easier. And I think that's kind of where the future of this industry may be going is more of like a collaborative. I think collaboration was the table stakes anywhere. It's becoming table stakes anywhere, you know, whether you're, a, I think 
Marty's mentioned this before about his Tesla, right? Like sharing keys and, you know, sharing your bank account is another example. Um, you know, sh sharing the house to the key to my house. Uh, I think we'll see more and more of this collaboration and teams will become more of just table stakes. Yeah, and I think the other big theme that we're hearing in you know, fintech that you know for people in fintech is going to be an old term, but for folks new to it is embedded fintech. You know, that's mm -hmm. where Gather kind of sits, where you're really just building on the infrastructure and the platforms you know that pre-exist, and you're building this new layer, which is a little different than sort of the lipstick on the pig, where you're you're building on sort of archaic uh, infrastructure to stand up you know, the new instance of of a bank, or you're really just a a new facade to get someone to sign up for a MasterCard um, with, with a new user interface layer on top here. It's bringing different parts from the financial world you already um, have access to uh, together and to do any number of things, you know, and in Gather's case, just to have more collaborative uh, finances. And I think you're going to start to see, you know, more of that as well. Uh, talking with a startup uh, recently called uh, Ensemble, and it's, it's a lot like Gather, but it's for uh, co-parenting. So, so mm -hmm. you know, obviously high divorce rate here in the U.S., um, you know, when, when there is a divorce and there's children involved, uh, you know, the splitting of the finances can be sometimes difficult or challenging, especially if there are communication issues in the relationship. And, you know, to have a platform that, that allows for that to occur, that becomes interesting. And then you know, I think you're going to start to see, you know, Mike's talking about couples and people in relationships or, you know, people who are married, you're talking, you know, we're talking about people who might be separated with children or co-parenting, you know, I think we'll, we'll, we'll start to see it, you know, come down to uh, roommates and, you know, house sharing, you know, beyond things like Splitwise, which I, I think we'll also see a consolidation of apps that were really interesting features. And we'll start to see those features come into, you know, um, bigger products and then probably some of those features start to die off the app like features like like splitwise which is kind of you know, does the one thing really well right so part of what i'm hearing is that uh, the ui piece is obviously a big part of it right and i don't know if you saw the journal article about jane fraser at citigroup and she's going to have to do a lot of work to get city back where they used to be so just putting a new beautiful interface on top of the existing city services is not going to be enough, right? There's going to have to be some form of service innovation there. So what do we think is the, the, the magic mix, right? It's got to look good. We know that's table stakes. So how much service innovation has to happen before somebody like city is going to actually be able to compete with, you know, one of the challenger banks. I think it has a lot to do with building, rebuilding trust with your, your users or your customers and building a more loved brand. So for instance, like Chase, they do a lot with their mobile apps and their desktop site. And mm -hmm. I, in, I, every time they come out with a new version, I appreciate it, but it's still, it's more of a nice to have rather than um, I'm not really building trust. You know, they even have, you know, if I go into my banking account and to my accounts, they have spending breakdowns, very similar to what we have in Gather. But there comes this point where I, I don't know how much I want to trust that data, even though it's probably very accurate coming from Chase and, you know, the, the keeper of my, my money. So that's, I think in the future, in the near future, in the next three to five years, these big banks like City and everything, they're going to have to rebuild trust uh, with their customers. Yeah. I, I wonder like to what degree, I think Mike hits it on, on, on loved brand and trust, or I don't even say it has to be a loved brand, but like, you know, a, a known or established or a brand that I already have strong association with. Um, you know, how much they'll start if, if we still if we keep going down this path of niche banking products and um, sort of embedded fintech and layers on top and you know, lip sticking on the pig, you know, Apple comes out with its own credit card and, you know, it's, it's just, you know, a credit card, you know, built on a, on a big bank, I think like Morgan Stanley or something or JP Morgan in um, but you know, it's just, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's the Apple look and feel on top with, 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 a, with some nice Apple like UX built into the iPhone. But other than that, you know, it's just, it's the same fundamental card you would have gotten before just, you know, now Appleized and, you know, with Apple specific rewards, a lot of people love their Amazon prime card, um, mm -hmm. you know, to what you, because they just do so many Amazon purchases, you know, to what, to what world does Amazon basically stand up an Amazon bank because it's just better to bank through Amazon as you do most of your work there. The thing we've been talking about recently on Twitter was, you know, will, will, um, big companies like Walmart, who's the largest employer 
the United States, 2.2 million employees. Well, they just stand up a bank. You know, we have the Walmart bank where if they can give it to, so you have uh, companies like Gusto and, and Gusto Payroll. And there's a lot of things that Gusto can do with Gusto Wallet, where, you know, having your bank directly tied to your payroll provider, Gusto has proven there's a lot of value there. Mm-hmm. But like what happens when Walmart comes in and just cuts out Gusto and says, oh yeah, there's now the Walmart bank app. And if you work at Walmart, you get your paycheck, you know, now instead of two days earlier, five days earlier, because it comes right from the source. Uh, you actually get a higher paycheck because there's no payroll fees or there's no admin fees, you know, that were coming from other places. Uh, your 401ks, I don't know, better. Uh, there's just a whole bunch of other features you can get now that you wouldn't have been able to get before. You can get, um, I think the biggest thing you'll see from something like a, a Walmart employee bank is, um, you know, better, better, um, uh, lending against your paycheck so instead of having to go to I was just about to say that yep yeah yeah because walmart knows you know if you're about to be fired or not better than anyone else and walmart know i mean if you work at walmart they (laughs) they know how much you get paid they know how the company's doing i mean because because that's where like gusto wallet has an issue is like you know it it's tied into the company but it's still kind of a degree removed it'd be much stronger if, if, if the company that you know was using gusto had their own instance of gusto running, um, you'd have much closer access to the data. So, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're, it, I think this is all about underwriting and, you know, how do you get to the data quicker, faster, and who's going to have better access to that data. And I think that'll be the new driver in FinTech is um, it'll all be about underwriting. Yeah. That's interesting. And, you know, we're seeing some of that, like um, people who have food service jobs get issued gift cards instead of direct deposit. Right. So, the, the people who have the money, the, the employer is essentially holding on to the money until you need it instead of paying it to you in one lump sum. I'm yeah, not sure like how much people are going to like that, but that's what, that's what's happening. Something with the word D E E L. I forget what the actual brand is, but uh, contractor payments and um, they, they'll, they'll, they'll allow the contractor to get paid out in crypto and they're connected to their Coinbase account, you know, which is, again, they don't have to create a new bank account. Like this is embedded. Like it'll just, they connect their, their Coinbase and then they can get their, their salary. Basically it's not W2 salaries, like contractor salary, but paid out in uh, cryptocurrency of their choice, which is, you know, interesting. I'm not saying that that's the right move or the wrong move, but interesting that that, you know, flexibility and availability is there if, if you so chose to want it. Yeah. You know, this kind of goes down. I just want to mention something. This mentions, Marty, you've mentioned this before where, you know, what a good decade ago, we all, if you wanted to switch uh, mobile phone providers, you had to change your mobile phone number. And nowadays it, you can change, you can switch to any mobile phone provider and bring your phone number with you. So like the switching cost was very easy. I'm curious, like you mentioned in the, like, what is, is there a world where you can, your banking account can just follow your, like that number can follow you everywhere and you can just continue to switch banks without that overhead of having to tell everyone that you've changed your, your checking account number. And yeah. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Why, like, I love things like Platt where it's just, you know, yeah. you can connect and kind of, and I mean, the way gathers looking at the world, I mean, I think that's what makes gather different than Zeta is, is Zeta says, Hey, you know, there's a neo way to do uh, joint checking accounts and gather says, you know, the concept of, of standing up a new account for joint checking is itself archaic. And so, you know, uh, who's right or wrong, you know, time will tell, but, you know, it does seem like there is the possibility for a world where, you know, keep, keep your, keep your cell phone number, but, you know, switch your provider. That's interesting because it moves banking away from the retail experience and back to you know, kind of the back end, right? banks just become a series of APIs. And if you, to, to keep going on Mike's thread, if you have uh, like your wallet ID and you can give your wallet ID to any bank as a service provider, and then whoever is paying you continues to use that same wallet ID, then you can move that across any different provider that you want. Like that kind of decouples this whole banking relationship in the first place. So like how long before A, that's possible and two people would actually do it and just one drive the other idea how long how long that would take it's an interesting idea for sure and this is what kind of comes out of things like the 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 dodd frank act um and you know the ability so i mean some of the things that that, that come out of this are um especially with um who is senator dobbins but lee he basically puts into place the fundamentals that are required for these neobanks to stand up. And this is why you have such a surge of them, you know, coming from 2011 till today. Um, but it's why 
uh, but but the the little loophole was that a lot of the restrictions that were placed on the large traditional banks um, uh, because of Dodd-Frank are not placed on the community banks, the smaller banks. And so mm-hmm. those community mm-hmm. banks, the ones you never heard of, the small little bank in Salt Lake City that actually powers your you know, PayPal, Vemno, Square Cash, whatever it might be, Brex, um, is, is it became really powerful really quick. And so there's this bank that you have, you have no association with, that you've never heard of, that you'll never walk into a branch of, uh, you know, some name that, 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 you know, escapes you, but uh, it powers, you know, one of the most powerful fintech applications in the world. Uh, and I, so, I, you know, will we see more of that where, um, yeah, you know, it doesn't, the brand doesn't matter. And I think that's where you're going to start to compete um, these, um, you know, the city banks or the Bank of America that have such a retail consumer presence, um, you know, will, will it even matter? But, you know, because now we, we've, we've moved that brand over to the, um, the platform side where, you know, Chime is the brand now. Right. And the bank that powers Chime is. Right. And that's going to continue to happen. I mean, we're seeing that a lot in in Europe too. There's a bunch of smaller, what we would call challenger banks, which are essentially a brand. And there's some other big bank actually handling everything behind the scenes, but people like that. And maybe Marty, that's back to your point about the dog lovers or the people who are, you know, identify with any community. Um, You know, they can go to a bank that, that feels good to them, even though the back end is all the same stuff. It's just a giant spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. Like sometimes I love going to the apps and just go, go, going down to the terms of service and you know finding out that you know Vemno is First Century Bank in Ingo Money Inc. It's like I don't know who those are. That's I didn't realize that that's, that's who I'm banking <laughs> right. with. And then I think Square Cash is is Sutton Bank. It's like who who here has ever banked with Sutton Bank before? You know, but you've certainly you know put a lot of money into Square Cash and you have a lot of faith in Square and Jack Dorsey, but you didn't realize that the the, the true power behind the money movement there is you know something called Sutton Bank. Right, that you've never heard of, but they're the exactly. ones that have the charter. Yeah, yeah. and much exactly. you know, like Simple was what BBVA, and I think yep. at one point they were they switched banks in the middle of um, the the bank that they started on. They actually switched, changed banks uh, halfway through, and now they're they're closing down as of you know a couple months ago, which is going to be an interesting conversation with all these neo banks and these challenger banks who are standing up. You know, they're pretty new, right? We we don't have a whole lot of data to show how scalable they are, how sustainable they are in the future. You know, I like Marty's been with Bank of America for 10 years. There's, I don't think there's another neo bank out there that anyone has been at for 10 years because they haven't been around that long. So rather they test, they, you know, like we all thought simple would be around forever. So it's really interesting, going to be an interesting thought just of, you know, what happens when we all start, all these neo banks start closing down in say five years and the switching costs just get way too, consumers get fatigued. Mm-hmm. I think it's just going to happen with the internet in general. You know, this, the, the, the promise of forever, um, you know, isn't holding up. I mean, I, the, my, the biggest heartbreak for me was Flickr just because I put so much time and energy into, you know, curating and cataloging and, al- and putting all my photos into albums and uploading the high res versions. And then, you know, one day Flickr is basically, you know, well, it says it's, it, it's going to start charging me a substantial amount of money for every photo over a thousand photos. I think they went back on that, but they, there was this moment where it's like, well, shit, like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to take all these? I and mean, there's plenty of places to, to put them on, but I have to like, you know, do the work. And, you have you know, to that's do a it. lot of work. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, the switching you know, costs are too high. I think, you know, some, some clever startup out there somewhere will make switching between banks easier, but I think that's going to start to change the landscape. And I don't think folks are cognizant of like what's going to happen. So one of the things I'm noticing right now is that um, one of Chime's biggest issues is well, every every neo challenger bank right now lives and dies on um, getting you to put your direct deposit in into their bank because the not that they really make a whole lot of money there. Uh, it's that the the it's such a difficult thing to do that if they can get you to do it, you're going to stay a customer for longer and use them as your primary bank. So like that's the biggest reason to get you to go to have your direct deposit go over. And if you sign up for any of these, you'll you'll annoyingly see there's some PM there somewhere who's tasked with um with this task because you just you get you get hit over the head with this um annoying uh, rhetoric to switch your direct deposits right. switch your direct deposits like enough already even even Vemno is starting to get a little annoying about it but what Plaid did was say hey it's really hard for um people the reason people aren't switching is because it's kind of a pain in the butt to to switch your direct deposit over so we're going to actually make Plaid for payroll and we're going to make it so that you can connect your ADP or your paychecks account and you can switch your direct deposit very easily. And so Chime is like, holy shit, this is amazing. Because like the thing that you know, was a little bit of a barrier to entry is now easier. But like inadvertently, what I don't think they realize is they only cared about 
direct deposit because it created vendor lock. And if exactly. they now the tool to get more people to do it is easy, then I mean, switching off of Chime will become easy. So like, there's no, we're back to the, like direct deposit doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that we're going to see um, it becoming a lot easier to switch between bank accounts now. Like, um, but I mean, still switching between accounts is hard. Imagine like if you found out tomorrow that like, you know, Gmail was over and you had to switch email providers, like, oh man, what a headache that would be. You know, I, I'd want a slow progression that over like three or four years. Uh, um, so, you know, switching your bank is going to kind of feel like the same thing. So then when switching costs come down, what's going to be the differentiator? Is it going to be brand or is it going to be service? And that's what I kind of fear, you know, from a product perspective. Is, is it just, you know, a race to, to, to newest feature? Is it a race to the bottom on price? Like who can, uh, you know, offer the best um, interest rates? Uh, you know, who has the newest cool feature? Because I haven't seen one challenger bank now where whatever cool, compelling feature they have, you get about four months and everyone has that feature. So, you know, telling me that you can give me my paycheck, you know, two days earlier, you get four months while that's pretty cool until everyone else has figured out how you were able to offer that. And I think the thing that we see out of the challengers and the Neos is less about like what they are and the fact that um, they're, the way they're constructed is you know, mostly through venture financing, which gives them access to more capital than some of the institutional. So they're able to offer some of these, what we call like ridiculous perks um, right. for a short period of time, which you know, help with the cost, cost of customer acquisition. Cause it's like, oh yeah. I'll do that. And I, I think, you know, we even saw this with like the, um, the blue aprons of the world, you know, in the beginning when they were in flux of capital before they go public, they, you can get, you know, your first five meals free. It's like, it, it made sense to just sign up for every one of those and jump between them. And you basically mm -hmm. eat free for a year. Right. Yeah. And so then the, the durability is going to come from any of these, these companies that can uh, actually build a service layer that is compelling and, and creates value for people. Because if everyone has the same features, you're just going to go like the differentiator is going to be brand, right? But yeah. if the service is, is, is meaningfully different, and I'm thinking about like Bank Mercury's just going after startups that are trying to scale and grow and they're building tools into the banking UI that these startups need to basically look and see if they're on track, if they're meeting their financial goals which is, you know, an amalgamation of two different services that you used to have before, but now it's in the same UI. That's interesting. Is another bank going to come along and do the same thing and then be able to go after startups like Mercury does? Maybe, but, you know, what, what's going to be the compelling value proposition if it's just the same feature? I think and this that, is why, like, we're seeing, like, Stripe is now, like, the most valuable, I mean, hundred, it's almost $100 billion. Like, like right. you know, that's an infrastructure. This is why we saw Plaid, Pre this conversation, we all dropped our mouths when like Visa was going to buy them for $5 billion. It's like, holy shit, right. that's so much money. But then in the 24 months before that deal fell apart, FinTech changed so much that $5 billion seems like chump change. You know, it almost seems ridiculous to say out loud. But um, now it's like, oh, now that they're not going to sell to Visa anymore, they're almost instantly worth $15 billion. It's like, right. holy shit. Like, like we just realized mm -hmm. how important what Plaid brought to the ecosystem was. And, you know, every employee of Plaid probably, you know, shit themselves for the first 10 minutes of hearing that Visa fell apart. And now they realize that their, their, their equities were three times uh, what it would have been if they went to Visa. Yeah, the Blue Apron analogy is interesting when you apply that to banking because, you know, for instance, me and my wife, we tried many, so many of those like prep meal kit things like Blue Apron and things like that. And we landed on one called Sunbasket because it was very niche to like organic foods. And that's what we cared about. And if you apply that to banking, like the pets, like, you know, I want to do banking because for, because I'm a pet lover, um, not to knock on that idea, but it's the question I have is like, what value can my bank provider provide me for being a pet, pet lover? And I think that's where like that value is going to come from to answer, to kind of go back to what you're talking about. Yeah. And if they so, say that, you know, portion of proceeds go to ASPCA or, you know, you can make it easy to donate to, you know, the animal shelter of your choice, like that's kind of cool. But at what point does that just become novelty? Yeah. And you can do that now, no matter where you bank, like you can write a check to ASPCA. That's easy. But them taking that little bit of friction away might not be enough to hold on to you once you realize that the rest of the service is just the same that you would get in mm -hmm. any other bank. 
Right. I think there's also going to be this like consolidation um, where, you know, there's a whole bunch of startups. The, the pet category is big because if you love your pet, you'll spend a ridiculous amount of money on them. So yep. um, people <laughs> love to go after it. Uh, but, you know, pet insurance is, is one that, you know, was, was this weird thing that when you first got a dog, you know, 15 years ago, you're like, oh, yeah, there's a thing called pet insurance. And you find some weird company you never heard of and you pay them, you know, some ridiculous amount of money just, you know, in case the worst thing happens and you got to take your dog to the emergency room. And now there's, you know, a million startups that offer pet insurance and they're, they're, they're cheaper and, you know, features. But, you know, with the, with, I think, you know, to Mike's question, if I were that, you know, pet centric bank, you know, one of the benefits I'd immediately offer that, you know, you get pet insurance, you know, built in, it's like, oh, well, that makes sense. I need that anyway. Uh, and then if you told me that, you know, from an underwriting perspective, that when the worst case does happen, because you do have your direct deposit connected with this bank, that, um, you know, you can take a loan against things for, for your pet specifically. So now you've right. combined, uh, banking mm -hmm. with pet insurance with underwriting of like, you know, big potential, um, you know, catastrophes that could happen. And if your biggest fear is your, your dog getting hit by a, a car or getting cancer and, you know, how you're going to cover that cost, um, you know, then you got a bank for you. Right. Yep. And then you've created a, a service package that is meaningful, uh, meaningfully differentiated, right? It's, it's different than what you're going to get from Bank of America or Chase. Yeah, yeah, because Bank of America would never, I mean, just the economics wouldn't make sense for them to go that niche. And so right. yeah, the yeah. only way you're going to get niche, and, but the only way niche works is that niche is really just built on top of, you know, some version of Bank of America somewhere. <laughs> right, so right. Is how Bank of you remember when, uh, when you used to order checks and like Deluxe would give you like 40 or 50 different types of checks you could order. You could get the, like the veterans checks or the dog lover checks or the, mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the nature lover, the ocean lover, whatever. So maybe there's uh, something like that that happens in the future where the big banks decide to, to offer different styles of checking accounts. And it's basically the same account with some other service layer attached to it. Yeah. And everyone's going to want something. I remember like, you know, it was hot for a minute there where um, a few credit cards released the ability to like upload your own photo to the credit card. Yep. It's like, oh my, I, you know how many people switched to that MasterCard just, just to get that? Like, like that was huge. And now it's yeah. like, you know, not everyone offers it, but like now that everyone can have it, like we, we turned out that consumers don't want it that bad. Like we don't actually care that much. Right. Um, but like, but yeah, dumb little feature like that was all it took. And I think we're just, that, that'll be the race to, you know, feature parody is, is when one group comes out with something cool, new and novel. Um, and then, you know, how do you copy it really quickly? Because all it is, for, I mean, for most of these, it's very rare that we're seeing somebody um, crack the code on doing something that was that was near impossible. What they what they really did is they figured out some loophole or some creative way to accomplish something that hadn't been accomplished before in a cost-effective way. And then once everyone unravels how they did it, there's nothing proprietary there. Then they all do it. Just the same exactly. with like getting your paycheck two days earlier. Yeah, it's not real innovation. You're just kind of. Uh, slightly repackaging something that other people can do. So it's really first to market advantage at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So uh, anyone want to be bold enough to make any 2021 year end predictions? <laughs> 2021 year end. Uh, let's see in the, in the FinTech space. Uh, I, what I think we'll see, like, one thing that I'm excited about is, uh, and I've been talking to a few folks about this is the combination of, of uh, embedded fintech in other places where we didn't normally expect it, but it makes a lot of sense. So um, like the most obvious one are like DocuSigns, like usually just anything I have to DocuSign, um, there's sometimes like a transaction at the end of that. Oh yeah. Um, and, but payments is never connected to that. Like it's a separate thing that I've got to like get wire instructions. So, you know, uh, apartment leases, this makes sense. Home mortgages, this makes sense. Yep. Uh, angel investing, this makes sense. So like, you know, it seems so odd to me that they're, they're disconnected. So I think that's gonna come together. I do think we're gonna see it's been a long time coming, but you know, buying a house is, is a pretty big pain in the butt. Like you, it's even during COVID, it, it was it was always IRL. Like you still had to meet with a, um, a notary, um, and so we're seeing some disruption in notaries now. But um, you still had to meet with a notary. You still had to go physically somewhere in person and sign physical mm -hmm. documents. And there's there's a bunch of them. Uh, you know, you can't do all that digitally. We're seeing disruption there on the um, car financing side. So buying a car has never been easier than ever before. Shift and Tesla, you can do it all digitally. You don't even have yep. to ever go into a, a dealer and talk to a human. 
um, Tesla, you never have to talk to a human. You just, you do everything online and then they just, the car comes to you, right? <laughs> somebody brings, somebody brings it to you. And then, uh, you know, they take an Uber home, which is kind of cool, but, uh, you know, soon the car will just come to you. Um, so I think, I think we'll see a lot of that, uh, where, where payments will be embedded in places where it would have always have made sense. And, and um, we're not going to realize that, you know, oh, wow, the world could have been a lot better until we, until we have it. But, um, Mike, what do you see? Well, you, Mike, on the on the couple side in, in personal finances. I think that um, you know I've kind of already mentioned this, but it may not be end of twenty twenty one, but maybe in the next year or two, we'll see people being more open to running and managing their household finances like a business. Mm-hmm. So you know, businesses are, um, you know, it kind of crazy not to manage your P and L over if you're a business, right. Or your runway, look at your runway and just kind of forecast that out. And I think a lot of more, uh, we'll maybe see at least some couples get a little bit more comfortable with not a lot, not the masses, but we'll start to see that. And divorce rates will drop by half. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, money is the number two reason uh, yeah, they exactly. do get divorced. Right. And right. So, right. I don't think it'll happen by the end of 2021, but the end of 2022 for sure. Um, money movement across borders, you know, that it's still a big pain. Um, it's a pain. You know, Jay in our poker game, you know, two folks it just doesn't economically make sense for them to, you know, send 20 bucks over the wire on even like PayPal. And right. so it's like, that's, that is, seems like insanity, you know? And so yep. I think by yep. the end of 2022, we're going to see money movement internationally. And that's, that's going to change a lot. I think that'll, I mean, we talk about like, you know, the pandemic and bringing the world together through things like Zoom. Um, when we can do easier money movement, I think, I think we're going to see how much money talks and like the world will get much more connected really fast. Yeah. And that's going to depend a bit on people who need to transact across borders. I think you know, TransferWise or now their wise.com is, is, has done a really good job of that. You know, I've used it almost every time that I've, I've gone to Europe because it's just easier than going to the uh, little terminal at the airport and saying, here's a thousand dollars or whatever. Um, so things like that should be interesting. Um, I think my prediction is that we're going to see two things happen is some of the big banks are going to um, make a giant upgrade to the UI. Like we're going to see some of these apps improve dramatically. Uh, one of them is going to be um, an in-house team that builds it and makes it better. And the other is going to be by acquisition. And I'm not sure which is going to be which yet. Someone's going to buy one of these like, like, like Chime and say, okay, now Bank of America looks like Chime. And it's going to be something like that happens. Yeah, yeah. Now I was just getting so. crushed. They're getting crushed like, by these beautiful wanted, app UIs and yeah. they have to do something about it. I want to know how does Capital One, you know, before the fintech sort of hype of the last, you know, let's just call it like three years, Capital One was making all these movements. You know, they, they, yep. they were, they, who did they buy? They bought that big agency uh, here in San Francisco. Adaptive um, Path. Yeah, Adaptive Path. Yeah, I mean, yep. They were, you know, they're based in the, uh, uh, DC region. And so, you know, they were gobbling up all the talent, all the best designers yep. were getting yep. capital one jobs. And so how did you, how did you have all of that and make all those acquisitions? And you, your experience is still like one of the worst in the industry. Like that, that makes no sense to me. Like yeah. what are all these people doing? Well, so we, the three of us all know several folks who work at capital one and I've had conversations with a few of them and they're working on what the bank deems high value stuff. And a lot of that was internal tools that the customer is never going to see to make it more efficient to run the business. And then there's some external tools, but even then, and this is a, a UI design thing that I've been thinking about for a while that's kind of outside the threat of fintech, but because it applies everywhere, but definitely within fintech, is the adaptable UI, where you've got certain people who are going to respond to a UI that's been created in a certain way, and other people are going to want it slightly differently. So more, some people are going to be more comfortable with a more dense, compact UI, like Gmail offers you a way to do that, make it more compact or make it more spaced out. So when are we going to start seeing that in some of these um, consumer-facing apps? And I say that because I remember, I won't say who it was, but I remember a conversation I had with someone who leads design at Capital One. And they said that a lot of the stuff that you see on the consumer front, like mortgage applications, auto loans, and all that stuff, 
that's all been AB tested. It's all, that is the most efficient design. Yeah, it looks ugly to some of us who are more sophisticated in our designers, but for the everyday person who is their target market, that is the most efficient design. So we have to remember to set our ego at the door that sometimes things aren't going to be beautiful. Um, they just need to work really well. And um, I'm, I'm curious how much of that's going to make it into some of the both web and mobile experiences that we see where, you know, if Marty goes there, it's going to be all super slick and flashy and look great. But if somebody else goes there, like maybe Marty's mom goes there, it's going to look more like an interface that she's expecting and is uncomfortable with. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I wonder sometimes, you know, about the, um, the, the UI aspect specifically, but like also just the, the way... I guess when I think about the UI conversation, I think about the, what the customer says they want and what tests well, and then you know what, where the future is going to take us. And those are always two different questions. And it's hard to do both at the same time. Um, oh, absolutely. But, you know, like, like the customer never, never would have articulated to anybody at, at, at Schwab that they wanted fractional shares. I think they would have articulated that like, oh, I don't buy, I don't buy Tesla because it's, it's too expensive. But they right. never would have said, oh, I would have bought Tesla if I could have bought, you know, fractions of shares of Tesla. But like, you know, I, I look at that as part of like, hey, that's the that's the experience that, you know, somebody was able to offer that, you know, made it really competitive alternative. And, and so, you know, I think about that experience throughout the rest where I feel like at the institutional banks, larger ones, the mental models are still archaic and like, hey, this is the way it's always been done. And we can't deviate mm -hmm. from that. And then it takes, you know, a startup to come in and say, well, the only way for us to even survive against you is to do things the way that they have not been done. So we have to do it right. out of survival. And then that's, that's how we end up getting it. And that, I do think that's important too, is I think a lot of folks think that, oh, you know, the big creative innovations come out of startups. And that, I don't think that's true. I think that we have to be creative and innovative or else we die. And, you know, the bigger guy doesn't have to be because they're already thriving. And then once, you know, and in the bigger conglomerate should usually look at the startup as like A-B testing. It's like, okay, like that, that, that fractional thing's taking off. Cool. Let's go do it. Right. And I, but I yeah. think that's where, like, you know, they want to, from like an infrastructure standpoint, be ready. You know, any they, they should, it should always be a mandate. Like you had, you have no more than twelve months, no less than six months. Uh, if you see something taking off, you you have to be able to build that internally uh, into the current stack. Yeah, do something about it. Yeah, Mike, what do you think? You know, I've I've been in a lot of environments, design teams that have A/B tested the hell out of their UI, and it always doesn't really turn out to be um, the best, the best looking, you know, and the, the best way to put it because they, but they hit this like local maxima of like they've AB, AB tested themselves into this, like the AB tested the best version of the version they have mm -hmm. change one pixel conversion rates or like that metric a metric drops. Um, but what they don't realize is that if they just kind of reset, forget that local maxima kind of jump to the next, you know, they kind of have to, to fix the problem we're kind of they're seeing right now that they're getting beat the hell with is they have to like be okay with their metrics dropping just a little bit as they reset and find a new local maxima that has a higher right. mountain. And right. I think a lot of people, a lot of companies are not comfortable with that, with that reset. And um, I think they're going to have to, when they do acquire, if they do acquire a company or if they do have this new campaign of like, Hey, we're going to be more, we're going to do what these neobanks are doing and have fresh UI, you know, because fresh UI could come with, higher perceived value in some regards, right? And so um, I think, you know, A-B testing is good, but it, it's, it has its purpose and it will never get you to that next mountain, the next yep. hilltop. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad that, you know, the, the, the bank that, you know, buys Simple, um, Simple becomes that faster than that bank became simple. So, you know, right. none, none of the great things from Simple, the, the great things from Simple laid the, 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 the groundwork for FinTech on the Neo Challenger Bank side, as we know it, um, some of the UI paradigms and, and sort of ways of thinking about the customer experience. But, um, you know, in terms of institutional banks, especially the one that bought them, you know, none of, none of that really comes through it. I'm sure they'd make the arguments like, oh yeah, you know, culturally we're different, we're better, but like, you know, not much has changed and you know, right. not much will change there. So like, you know, not, not, not really. Yeah. And then lastly, the, like kind of what Gmail did with inbox, I, I don't know what the strategy was with inbox, but it was great. It was a great I don't application. Think Gmail did either. Yeah. But what they did was you kind of saw long-term after they shut down inbox, it almost looked like it was just a labs playground to learn what was cool interactions for, for email without cannibalizing their current Gmail users. And so like mm -hmm. a lot of the cool features in inbox that I liked that we all liked, 
they have slowly made themselves they've shown themselves in gmail you know mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. quick those little quick reply buttons or the travel trip groupings and things like that so yeah yeah because what, what i think is interesting too like some parallels is you know everyone loves superhuman and they all talk about like, it's still like this little clout if you could say like you're on superhuman you're using superhuman very what is superhuman? Like if 99% of it is Gmail, like, like Gmail is doing 99% of the work. And then superhuman has this like thing that's unique and proprietary to them that like makes the experience better. But like, you know, most of the work, like, like the actual like email work is still powered by Google. Um, and so the question would be like, is Google afraid that superhuman gets to be so popular that eventually superhuman builds you know, the actual like, you know, email server infrastructure and like, you know, doesn't need Google anymore. Uh, I don't think Google is afraid of that because uh, I think they know how hard it is to do what they've done. And that, you know, and um, I think superhuman would be scared, you know, does, does Google just look at what they've done and say, hey, we, you know, we can build some more, you know, intelligent features on top of um, Gmail. Um, I don't think that that happens also because of what we talked about earlier, Jay, you brought up where superhuman isn't for everybody. And, you know, right. it's a very niche amount of people who like that experience. They just happen to be in this bubble called Silicon Valley. So it makes it seem like everyone wants superhuman, but really right. like the cohort of Americans that wants superhumans, probably less than 10 million. Um, you know, so they, they cap out at some point, um, you know, definitely less than a hundred million. So a third of the population, but um, then like, you know, like, let's just talk about like now on the banking side, you know, this bank of America, like, would they ever, do they care about the embedded FinTech? You know, it's like, hey, let them, you know, build on top of us. Or are they afraid that, you know, because what we're seeing now is that so many of these um, FinTech uh, upstarts are getting their own bank charters. So now it is getting a little scary. And, right. you know, will they start to come for us, uh, I think is the fear. And so my my fear with the bank charter uh, sort of madness going on right now is like, they're, they're either... The fintechs are buying companies that already had bank charters, or they're getting to bank charters themselves. And you know, will we see a, a, a temporary slowdown in innovation where some of the institutional banks start to cut off access because they're they're now afraid? Yeah, could be. And you know, I think you said this before, Marty. Is like, can the can the big banks become challengers before the challengers can become big banks? Right. So, yeah. how long does yeah. it take for one of these startups to amass enough customers and enough? funds under management to where they actually are a threat to a bank of America, mm-hmm. Chase, JP Morgan. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens at city over the next probably two to three years as they start to transform what they're doing and who they're doing it for. You know, that's probably a whole nother discussion. And then we have to think about like, where are these banks actually making their money? Are they making their money from the people who have $200 deposit accounts? No. So is it in their best interest to pursue those customers. And at some point, these banks are probably going to fragment along customer segments, right? So kind of not going necessarily back to the thing about whether you like dogs or whether you like the ocean or whatever, you know, not by interest, but by financial customer segments. So there's a bank for people who need a certain type of financial service. And there's a separate bank for people who need a different type of financial service. Now, that's definitely going to happen or continue to happen. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Guys, it's been a good chat. Um, We could go on for hours, but we probably shouldn't. I know we're all busy. And so uh, always good to talk to you both. Thanks for doing this. You too, man. Yeah, thank you. This is fun. I'm going to link up a whole bunch of stuff in the notes. So if anybody's listening to this, check out the notes. There's uh, links to, uh, I think, probably most of the stuff that we talked about. And I'll throw up some links to Mike and Marty too. Awesome. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Talk later. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said. Good design is good business.